All right, so welcome to another episode of The Fractured Brain. This is Jimmy B. Brown II. It is, uh, I believe, September 8th, uh, if I'm not mistaken. <clears throat> but uh, nonetheless, we are here. It's another day, another dollar. In my case, another penny. But nonetheless, <laughs> um, so I think that's for everybody nowadays. Another day, another dollar. It hasn't existed in quite a ways. Um, so obviously there's a lot, a lot of crazy stuff happening right now. And I could go over politics. I could go over the happenings. Um, but today I decided I want to talk music. So I saw a movie years ago called, uh, Coffee and Cigarettes. Um, and it's funny because they just talk with different people and you know, it's funny they, they talked with Eddie Pop and, and uh, you know, obviously you guys know he's, he's one of my favorite artists um, but uh, yeah it, it was really really cool um, so today's my copy and cigarettes I'm just gonna talk about whatever with you guys and having wonderful um uh, cup of uh, Nicaraguan and uh, it's very very cool so uh, what do I want to talk about today I want to talk about some some music influence and uh, obviously working pretty hard on the, the Camelot record for the last six months um, <laughs> and actually years but really really concentrative effort for the last six months um, I didn't realize how much uh, I was really, really heavily influenced by the band U2. And um, because I hear it all over the record, and, and then I started reflecting back to when I when I actually wrote the album, uh, Camelot. Uh, that's, you know, I usually make a, an effort when I'm writing and recording for a new record. I don't listen to music typically, or I listen to music that's like completely abstract from, um, from any style that I write, like I'll listen to classical or I'll even listen to country, um, you know, because I got to get my music Jones on, you know, start Jonesing for music. So got to get your music going. And, um, so I, I, uh, at that time, I, I just remember listening to a lot of U2, just uh, remembering uh, how I became a U2 fan. So I thought I'd recount and regale you with the account of how I became a fan of the band U2. Um, it was 1982. And I was, um, I was, uh, going to a church and, um, very antisocial, you know, just didn't, didn't, didn't like meeting with people and whatever. And, um, uh, one girl had heard I played guitar and she befriended me, but she, and she was a flautist. So, 
um, she thought we can, you know, do like music together. And uh, a couple of times we got together and it wasn't working. You know, I wasn't much of an acoustic player. And, um, you know, this is prepubescent angst. I've got a lot of anger in me. And, uh, puberty and everything else, like I said, so, <laughs> so I was really, really into, uh, Human League and, and uh, Gary Newman, and then for rock, you know, I, of course, I love Black Sabbath and Iron Maiden and stuff like that, so, uh, not, not stuff I could share with the church girl who played flat in the flute, you know, so, um, that went aside. And, um, then I was introduced to, um, um, uh, a guy named Rich, uh, who I just found out recently, um, sadly was, uh, was taken from us some years ago, um, which is really sad, um, because he was, he's, he's like the primary instrument reason how I met Helen and uh, and became you know more socially active in, in our youth group there at the church so uh, so my hands off to Rich Fierro he's a good guy and uh, you know I know we'll see 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 I see him again and um, that's a good promise that's to hold on to but but uh, um, Rich was a punk rocker so, um, and his mom was attempting to, um, you know, make him listen to more religious, well, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of Christian punk rock. Uh, we had Undercover, which was kind of like a Ramones type of thing. Um, but, um, that's about it <laughs> back in 82, you know? So he and I started getting together and obviously very, very different styles of guitar playing. Um, I was more tight, articulate, and he was more, you know, uh, loose and sloppy, because that's, that's punk rock. <laughs> and uh, it was cool, though. And uh, we had fun together. But uh, we didn't, the, the music thing didn't last long, but we definitely liked music, listening to music together. And he introduced me to a whole lot of punk rock that, honestly, I'd never heard of. You know, you know, Social Distortion, uh, TSOL, um, The Exploited. Uh, well, you name it, he introduced it to me. GBH, um, uh, Discharge. Uh, I mean, like I said, The Cramps. Um, I mean, you name it, he introduced me to it. So, some of it I liked, some of it I thought was pretty cool. And I especially liked anything with melody. And of course he introduced me to the Pistols, um, which I liked them because there was a sense of melody and there was a sense of like, okay, a couple of these guys actually play their instruments and know what they're doing. So, um, some of the other stuff was just so <laughs> Anywho, um, so I am, uh, 
listening to some different stuff and and well they happen to be fans of this band U2 I never listened to them um and he had told me oh okay well they're they're a Christian band out of Ireland I'm like oh okay um but again I we never got really got around to listening to them because we would listen to all this other stuff and uh, learning songs together and playing around and um, it was a really cool time for me because otherwise growing up I'd have really only had a couple of friends um, and even then only saw them very you know maybe at school once in a while when I missed a lot of school because I was sick you know, but that's a whole other story um, either way um, so it's 83 now and, um, uh, and, and him, and he has a little group of friends that he hangs out with. He has his little brother, Ronnie, and, uh, another guy named Leon. And, um, this other dude named Bill, which I think Bill was only allowed to hang out with us because he was a major dork, but I think he was allowed to hang out with the group because he had a he had a car he actually drove and he had, a, he had his own truck so we could all pile into his vehicle and, and talk <laughs> or, or you know go places you know go to the record store or whatever um so um we found out youtube was playing uh they were in the midst of their war tour and uh they were playing at a little place called the golden bear out in Huntington beach and so you know we were gathering all our money together and, uh, you know, to buy tickets. I think the tickets were like six bucks or seven bucks or something like that. And it was U2 and The Alarm and another opening band. I can't remember their name, but they were really cool too. And, um, that was my first exposure to The Alarm and to U2. And I really, really loved them thought they were fantastic um and uh really really liked the alarm especially um because they were like punk rock but using acoustic guitars it was super interesting um so um and then you two came on and they they did a great set and i remember you know not knowing any of the songs i just listened you know and it was a small crowd i would say there was probably a hundred or so um but it was a really great show and uh, from that point on you know i was like oh these guys are cool but never really bothered i actually ended up buying an alarm uh album um that day i had an ep uh i think it was called the stand or something like or maybe it was just the alarm and the song that the stand was on there. But, um, and, uh, I remember a year later, Declaration came out, their full-fledged release on IRS. And, um, uh, I, I just remember really, really digging them. But U2 was still cool. And so, finally, you know, uh, Rich arranges a double date with, uh, <laughs> with his girlfriend and Helen for me. And... I had already met Helen a couple times in the back of the church bus and seen her here and there and we've been talking on the phone. But uh, so I go to Helen's house for the first time after like 
six months of knowing her. And I'm really tripped out because Helen's parents are deaf. So I rang the doorbell. All these lights start blinking all over her house, you know, because the door was open. And I started freaking out. I was like, what the heck is going on? And then, you know, it's because her parents were deaf. So that's how, you know, so whenever the phone rang, all the lights went off, you know, it was, it was really, really trippy. But, uh, <laughs> anyways, um, so, um, I go into Helen's room and uh, she has a YouTube poster, uh, you know, on the ceiling of her bedroom. And I was like, oh, you're a fan of YouTube. She said, yes. She goes, do you want to listen to them? And I said, yeah. So she put on the war album and then she put on boy and then she put on October and it's like, Oh wow. She's really a YouTube fan. I said, you know, we went to go see them. They, uh, me, Rich and Ronnie and Leon. And you know, we, we went to go to the golden bear to go see them. And he was like, she was like, why didn't you tell me blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I didn't know you were a YouTube fan. I had no idea. And that's when I found out Helen was like all into punk rock and, you know, I thought she was like a rockabilly chick the way she dressed, you know. And she was really into the stray cats and everything, so. Helen was very eclectic, so. But, uh, so I ended up um, making dubs of her vinyl, of her albums, of, uh, of, of the U2 albums, you know, Boy, October, and War. Uh, and man, I just became obsessed primarily with the, uh, the boy album and the war album. October was cool. Um, but I became more obsessed with, with the war album. I just thought it was a fantastic record. Didn't quite understand the lyrics and part of it is I didn't understand the politics that were happening in, in Ireland at the time. So, uh, I think a lot of people that mistook them for like a full fledged Christian band um, kind of thought to themselves, well, yeah, that's why they're a full fledged, but they, they were more like a Protestant band, um, from the Irish politics side of things. Um, but nonetheless, great messages, um, very political, but still, you know, politically charged, but also those underlying messages of, of, uh, of scripture and Christianity. And, and I found all that stuff was really cool and it was very instrumental. Then, uh, then Under a Blood Red Sky came out and, you know, live at Red Rocks and, uh, we watched the movie or the, the video and I was like, God, there's like thousands of people there. I just didn't realize how big they were getting in the States and they were huge. And by this time they were, I mean, they were just starting to get a really great following and I just remember seeing them just the year before playing to a hundred people or so, you know, in Huntington beach. So, um, it was really, really cool. And, uh, just getting to discover what they were. And then news came out, you know, they had a new album coming out. I was so excited because I had read Brian Eno was now involved. Uh, on their production slash writing team. And of course I was already a Brian Eno fan, music for airports. Um, and of course the, the trilogy he did with David Bowie 
He'd also had been doing work with David Byrne from the Talking Heads, who I was a huge fan of too. So it was like, oh, match made in heaven. Now you two working with Brian Eno. And I remember uh, both my buddy Rich and Helen were, um, were both disappointed that Brian Eno was now working with you two. <laughs> and, uh, it, it, you know, because they were afraid he was going to destroy uh, their integrity uh, as a punk band or a post-punk band. Because, uh, you know, that's they were. I mean, they were just basically out of the post-punk rock era. Uh, and uh, it was really, really funny. But that was, to me, when they became very, very interesting. I mean, right from the get-go, you throw on a sort of homecoming. This is like, oh, yes, you can feel Eno's influence. And uh, they became more commercially commercially palatable. And uh, then obviously just good things followed from there. Rattle and Hum came. And then uh, then years later, the Joshua Tree. Um, and then uh, the greatest U2 album of all time, in my opinion, in my humble you know, Optin Baby came along and just blew minds, you know, because it was just so sonically different than anything they'd ever done. It was just so brilliant <laughs> in every which way possible. And consequently, that album really just like did a number on me. Joshua Tree was fantastic. There's no question that it skyrocketed them to a super band. They were now you know, full-fledged um, packing out stadiums, or not stadiums yet, maybe, but at the very least, definitely packing out arenas. And um, and it was cool where they had gone, and I really did love that album, but um, the one that did it for me, sonically, was, was Octune Baby. Just from the, the very get-go of... of uh, you know, Zoo Station, you know, that, you know, it's just like, wow, this is cool. And then the distorted drums, Bono's vocals are distorted throughout the whole song. It's like, yeah, this is, this is pure. This is real. It's art rock and it's fantastic. And, um, and then, you know, obviously the other albums came, you know, Zeropa, Pop, and, and, at that point, I think I started to lose interest because I thought now they're kind of getting weird for the sake of being weird rather than, you know, sometimes you can get caught up in being the artist and forgetting about the art because you're so concerned about being an artist. Um, they've even admitted it themselves. Um, and uh, But nonetheless, some great music came out on each of those records. And um, But uh, yeah... The, the primarily the uh, the Octune Baby record just had so much on there that I just absolutely loved and consequently like I said as I'm listening to uh, things about Camelot as I'm you know working on the mixes and re-recording guitar parts and uh, you know having drums redone on this part and bass being done you know because I mean it just if I told you how many times the album actually has been re-recorded and re-recorded and re-recorded, you'd probably think I'm crazy. But you know, I just kept recording take after take after take of each song, and um, 
but I just realized, oh my God, I've got so much U2 influence all over this. And and the funny thing is, is most U2 fans won't hear it. You know, I have a dear friend in the, the band Sombrance. Um, uh, his name's Rick Mester, and he's a huge, huge U2 fan. Huge, I mean, giant, huge uh, U2 fan. And even he didn't hear it until I pointed out, like, you know, the course of this song or the, the melody structure of this song or, uh, you know, then he, oh my God, yeah, you're right. Yeah, there's, there's, there is some U2 stuff in there. I mean, right from the get-go too, somber theme, nobody would guess it, you know, it's just, but uh, they were just such a huge, huge influence to, um, to my writing. And um, I just kind of wanted to today give my hats off and my thanks to, Bono, The Edge, Adam Clayton, one of the most underrated bass players, and Larry Mullen Jr., one of the most underrated drummers, too. Very creative in his beats, very creative in his style. Um, they're just a cool band that have done a lot more than, uh, you know, because a lot of people started with Joshua Tree, or they started with uh, Unforgettable Fire. And, you know, I had the, the good fortune to be able to start with going to see them during the war tour and then having Helen introduce me to, you know, boy and October and war. So I got to grow up with their catalog, listening to it, um, and just enjoying them. Um, and, and, uh, they just influenced a lot of, um, a lot of things like, uh, one of the songs drowning man, uh, during the course says, you know, hold on, hold on tightly, you know, and, uh, that was the name of one of my songs for, for deliverance that we had for a long, long time called hold on tightly. And, you know, just stuff like that. I never really noticed how much of an influence they were. So, you know, everybody cites Queensryche is my main band influence. And while they certainly are, um, I mean, there's no question singularly singular artists, I would say it's Terry Taylor and David Bowie, and then bands. It's got to be DAU2 and and uh, Queensrÿche, no question. Um, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to give a, a shout out to those four wonderful gentlemen from Ireland that uh, just put their heart, soul, blood, sweat, and tears on those records for all of us to enjoy. Because uh, made a difference, at least in the, this this guy's life, and uh, it's very exciting to see, uh, even all these years later, still what an influence they are. And uh, I just want to extend my gratitude and love uh, for all things you too, because they really, even in their questionable years and their strange years. Um, they were still a big influence. So, uh, anyways, so there's my gab for the day. Hope you enjoyed it. Less somber topics. That's for sure. Um, and now I get to go to my therapist and spill out onto them. So, <laughs> all right, guys, you guys have a wonderful day and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the fractured brain. This is Jimmy Pete round the second signing off.